Today we're looking in James chapter 5 as we continue through the study. And uh, we're looking at verses 7 through 12. And I just want you to look at that title. Hold on. Jesus is coming. Amen. And we see all the things in the world that are going on today. They discourage us. They depress us. They uh, distract us from doing what God has called us to do. But I want you to know there's good news today. Jesus is coming. And we need to be ready. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6 and talked there about how God will judge the wicked. And we made a couple of statements about this is um, probably a passage that is written to non-believers uh, there's some good evidence for that, but there's also some good evidence against it. I'm going to share that with you now. Uh, we mentioned this last week that in verse 1 of chapter 5, James addresses his audience here as rich men, whereas before, and we'll see it here in verse 7 again, he addresses them as brothers. And so by that contrast there, it has led some to believe that James is now writing to lost people in verses 1 through 6. Uh, the arguments against that is simply that that's the only place in the book where that might be the case. Everywhere else, he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. So scholars are kind of divided on exactly who he's writing to in the first six verses. I say that to say this. What he says is what is important. Not necessarily who he's writing to. And what does he say? He say, it says that if you uh, cheat people out of stuff, if you withhold from them, if you... Gain your wealth by fraud and deceit. What does he say? You are condemned. And, and you don't have the love of Christ in your heart and in your life. And so then he addresses them once again today and encourages them to hold on. They're being persecuted. They're being put to the test. They're facing all kinds of trials. What did he say in chapter 1 verse 2? Count it all joy when these trials come your way. Why? Because it increases your faith, it strengthens your faith. And that's the whole point of the book of James is that your faith might be strengthened so that you might endure to the end. Because the difficult times are coming. Uh, listen, becoming a Christian, becoming a believer in Christ does not mean you're going to have an easy life. Right? You still face the same struggles, the same trials, the same troubles that the lost world faces. Have you ever been sick? You ever had some financial difficulty? <laughs> you ever had heartache and disappointment in your life? Sure you have. We all have. So it doesn't, becoming a Christian doesn't exempt us from those kind of things. What it should do for the believer is to help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Why? Because He is coming. And when He comes, He's going to wrap up everything and everything will be done according to His Word and according to His will for His glory. Amen. So James writes here in verse 7 to be patient. So he's speaking to us today in verses 7 through 12 about the reward for the righteous. You have the judgment on the unrighteous, the judgment on the wicked in verses 1 through 6. And now he begins to talk about the reward, the, the glory that is awaiting those who are in a right relationship with God. So living for the Lord is living in light of His second coming. I've said this to you before, that I believe what made the early church, and we did a, a, a series through the book of Acts uh, a while back, 
And, and I said this several times during that series. I'll say it again this morning. The one thing that I think made the early church so successful that they were able to preach the gospel and 3,000 souls were saved in one day. I think the thing that made them so successful is they lived their life in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed He was coming back right then and right there in their lifetime. And I think you and I have kind of come, become complacent to that idea. We've heard it preached all our life. Get ready, get right, Jesus is coming. And we know He's coming, but I think sometimes we think He's not coming in our lifetime. Have you looked out your window lately? Have you turned on your TV set lately? That'll depress you, won't it? That will depress you if you watch the news. And I don't care what channel you watch. It's going to depress you. But I want you to know there's good news today. And Jesus is coming. Is, is capitalized <laughs> to emphasize the surety, the certainty of that. He is coming. I don't know when, but I know He's coming. And I know my job as pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, is to inform you and to challenge you and to convict you of that same idea that He's coming, that same fact. Let me change that terminology. Idea means it's, you know, it might be good and it might be bad. The fact, the fact is He's coming. And I believe he's coming soon. I believe he's coming soon. I mean, I don't see how this world can go on much longer without divine intervention. Amen, preacher. Now, that divine intervention could be a revival, a spiritual awakening, a renewing. Wouldn't that be awesome? But if it keeps going like it's going, the only hope... Is the return of Christ. And so look what James says. Be patient therefore brethren. Unto the coming of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 8. The coming of the Lord draws nigh. Verse 9. The judge is standing before the door. What do you think the emphasis is on in these verses? It's on the second coming. And he's, he's near. He's at the door. He's standing at the door. And he's ready to return at the Father's command. So James tells these believers here that are undergoing severe persecution. He says, be patient, therefore. Therefore, is pointing you back to verses 1 through 6. All the trials, all the troubles, all the oppression that they're undergoing. He says, be patient, therefore, brethren. Why? The Lord is coming. And He's coming soon. And He's standing at the door. And He's ready to come Soon. So what does it mean to be patient until the Lord comes? It means to do what God, is what God is doing. What is God doing? He's enduring the sin in this world. You remember back in Genesis chapter 6? <coughs> it said that the wickedness of man was so great that it grieved God's heart that He'd even created man. And it said that evil was on the heart of man continually. I don't see much difference in our society today. But what is God doing? He is patiently enduring the sin of man. Why? 
Because he wants you and I as the church, as the body of believers, to share the gospel with lost people. Oh, me. Listen, we're, we're saved not just to sit here and keep it all to ourselves. There's people that's dying and going to hell every day. And you and I have the glorious gospel, as Paul tells us in Corinthians, it has been entrusted to us. And you and I must share that glorious gospel with a lost and dying world. Now, does that mean they're all going to get saved? Maybe, maybe not. But if you share the gospel, you have met your responsibility. But if you don't share the gospel, guess what? Hmm. See, it's not up to you and I to save them. We can't save them anyway if we wanted to, can we? But it is up to us to share the gospel. To preach the gospel. To share the gospel in hopes that they will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ before it is eternally too late. So James says, to be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And then he gives us some, some illustrations here. He says, behold... The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. So he gives us this illustration of the farmer here. And the farmer here has to plant his seed here. The early rain was sometime in October or November as the seed was put in the ground. And that rain would come and it would help that seed to germinate. And then as that seed uh, would begin to uh, literally die is what it does. And then it uh, begins to produce the fruit. Then the latter rain would come sometime in um, early uh, April or May. And it would cause that seed to mature and become the precious fruit that the farmer has waited on. And so he says to be patient as the farmer is. Do you know that the farmer, and I've never been a farmer... Uh, I've always said, if you want a plant to die, bring it to my house. And uh, well, I'm talking about me too. And I weren't, I weren't bringing you in the equation. But I mean, I'm scared to even buy artificial flowers because <laughs> they're gonna fade. <laughs> I mean, anyway. Um, so you, some of you know a whole lot more about that than I do because you've been there and you've done that. But when you put that seed in the ground, aren't you pretty much dependent on God? To bring the rain, to, to keep the weather and everything just right. I mean, you can prepare the soil and put the fertilizer in and do all of that uh, kind of thing that you have to do uh, ahead of time. But you're ultimately dependent on God to make that fruit or that seed mature and to become what you have intended it to be by planting whatever kind of seed you planted, right? And so this is what James is saying, to be patient. And the farmer is patient during all that time. But what's he doing? He's not sitting at home twiddling his thumbs, is he? He's continually working the field. He's continually going out there to get the weeds out. And if it doesn't have enough rain, what do we do now? We put some water on it. We irrigate it. So he's constantly doing something. But the whole time he's patiently waiting for that seed to mature. Now, James here uses a, a word of the coming of the Lord here that's very common in the New Testament. There are basically three words uh, in the New Testament that speak to the coming of the Lord. And I want to share those with you right quick, like, because I think when we think about the coming of the Lord, all three of these words apply. Now, James uses the word parousia here. 
uh, which is the most common word uh, for the second coming of Christ. Uh, in secular Greek, that word was used to, to speak to the arrival of a king. A king who would come in after some battle. He would come in and he would receive the submission and the adoration of his subjects. And so that's the parousia. The second word is epiphania, which means the appearance of a god to his worshipers. And you should recognize that word, epiphania, epiphany. You know, there it is, an an appearance here. And so it's an appearance of of, uh, a god to his worshiper. When it's used of Jesus, it is God himself appearing to his people. The third word, and and we've heard this one several times, apocalypsis is the word we get our word revealing or unveiling from Revelation, the book of Revelation uh, here. So it's an unveiling or a laying bare. And when it's used of Jesus, it is the laying bare of the power and glory of God. And so we have have here uh, his, his coming as a king, and his subjects will bow down before him in worship and in adoration. We have the appearance of God to his people when he's coming. He's coming back and we're going to see him. And it's also the unveiling, the laying bare. Look at what Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar passage. We've studied the book of Philippians on Wednesday night. This is what Paul said about the coming of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form, the very essence of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form or the essence of a servant uh, and was made, became in the likeness of men. God became man in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Is what Paul is saying. He being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now you think you have suffered. Think about what Jesus endured. So that you and I can be here today and to preach and to worship him. Amen? Now here's where it gets good. Verse 9 of uh, Philippians chapter uh, chapter 2 verse 9. Wherefore... Because of his obedience, because of his humiliation, look what Paul says. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name. Amen. And here it is, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow at his parousia. As the king comes in all his glory and all his might, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he's coming and he's going to come as the king. And every knee, saved or lost, is going to bow before him. Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And every tongue is going to confess, Jesus is Lord. Hold on, He's coming. Now, you can confess Him now, but you will confess Him later. Oh, me? And I don't know about you, but I'm going to confess Him now. Because when I stand before Him, 
I don't want to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. If you saw our Facebook post this week, a pastor friend of mine passed away from this virus. I found out uh, yesterday or Friday that another pastor friend that I went to school with had a massive stroke. And I found out yesterday that they've taken the life support off, and I'm, I don't know if he's still hanging in there or not. I, I haven't heard, but the one that died earlier in the week is younger than I am. The one that died, uh, that's, if he's passed away, I don't know, but he's right at death's door. He's probably about my age. And you know what I think? I think what they're going to hear is, well done. Not because they're pastors. You see, there's, there's men and women in the pulpit that aren't living the life. Oh, me. But I know both of them personally. And I know what kind of life they have lived. And they have been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? He's going to be faithful to them. And they're going to see him in all his glory. And in all his might. And you know what? You and I are too if we're a believer. If we are in Christ as Paul says. And we may see him as he splits that eastern sky. And as he returns and he calls the church up. Or if we close our eyes in death. You know what we're going to do? We're going to open them in the arms of Jesus. And you know what he's going to say to the Father? This is one of mine. I gave my life for them. And the Father's going to say, come on in. (laughs) Amen? That's going to be some good times, isn't it? In the meantime, though, we are encouraged here to hold on because He's coming. William Barclay said this about the second coming. He said, the second coming of Jesus is the arrival of the King. It is God appearing to His people and mounting His eternal throne. Amen? It is God directing on the world the full blaze of His heavenly glory. Listen, we're going to see Him in all His glory. When He comes back this time, He's not coming back as a lamb being led to the slaughter. He's coming back as the King of kings. And He's coming back in all His glory, in all His majesty, in all His might. And you know what He's coming for? His people, His church. Those that have been faithful. Those that have endured to the end. And so James says here, be patient, brethren, for the coming of the Lord. And here's a great example. Look at what he says in verse 8. Be you also patient. Establish your heart. Set your heart on the things of God. Set your mind on the things of God. What's going to get you through the daily struggles of life? Staying in the Word of God. The troubles are coming. You've experienced them. They're coming. You face them each and every day. And and what's going on in our world today, we don't know what we face each and every day, do we? But James says here to be patient. And he's using a word all the way through verse 10 that means to uh, endure here. It's the idea of long-suffering here. To be patient until the end. Look what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. 
He said, he's talking about some people, he says, which sometimes he's talking about us, which were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God, God is long-suffering, God is patient with us. Do you realize that? If we got what we deserved, we would get death, hell, and the grave. Oh, me. But God is long-suffering. And that's the idea of the word that he's using here. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Listen, God, as I said in Genesis chapter 6, saw the wickedness of men. And he decided to destroy mankind except Noah. Why? Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of God. Why? Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man. He's in a right relationship with God. He's a blameless man. They could not find anything to even accuse him of. And Noah, here it is, walked with God. That is, he had a commitment to God. He had a lifestyle that demonstrated that he was a child of God. And you know what God did? God saved him. God gave him instructions to prepare the ark. And eight people were saved. A whole world died. But eight people were saved. Look in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is a good verse. I, lo I love this verse. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. As some men count slackness, He is long-suffering to us. Not willing, and here it is, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is God delayed? Why is the Lord's return being delayed? God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is enduring the wickedness of men in hopes that the church would wake up and share the glorious gospel so that men and women and boys and girls would come to Jesus. He's coming back. Are you prepared to meet Him? Are you prepared to stand before Him? I preached a sermon one time that the title of the sermon was 24 Hours to Live. What would you do differently in your life if you knew right now, if God spoke to you and said, you've got 24 hours, what would you have to change? What would you have to do differently? And if you're starting to make a list, <laughs> then something is wrong with your relationship with God. Because you should be faithful today. Whether you got 24 hours or 24 years. You see, we don't know those things. We don't know how long we have. And that's a good thing. Because if we knew, and my grandfather, I've shared some stories about him with you before. Uh, eighth grade education. When I listened to those stories as a, a kid and a teenager, I thought he was kind of dumb as dirt. But he was a pretty wise philosopher. He said, if we knew where we would be when the end of our life came, we would spend all our life worrying about it. Wouldn't we? So we don't need to worry about that. What we need to worry about is being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be patient. To establish your heart. Why? The coming of the Lord is near. Now look what he says in verse 9. Goes back to the issue of the tongue. Right? Grudge not one against another. Brothers. There it is again. 
He's calling out the church. Don't hold a grudge. Don't speak about others. Why? Lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Who's the judge? And he's taking notes. You know, we uh, sing this song about, I won't say the name, but the guy in the red suit around December. That he's making a list and he's checking it twice. God's making a list. He don't need to check it. Because he knows. Right? He knows. And James says the judge is standing at the door. So we don't need to grumble or complain against anything. Against the circumstances that we're going through. Why? Jesus is coming. Hold on, be faithful. What does he say in verse 8? Sta- establish your heart. Set your heart on God. The judge is standing at the door. In Exodus chapter 2, we have the what is, uh, one writer referred to as the foundation of suffering. If you know the, the, the story in the book of Exodus, what, what happens? Genesis ends, the book of Genesis ends in Genesis chapter 50. The people of Israel, the people of God are in Egypt because of a famine. And they've come down there voluntarily because of the famine, right? And Joseph is there. And Joseph uh, uh, was sent by God uh, to take care of his family. And so that's what he does. The book of Exodus opens up. They're now in bondage. And it says there's a new Pharaoh on the throne that did not know Joseph. And so he's put them in bondage into slavery. And you read the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. And you see the oppression the uh, uh, hardships, the, the suffering that the people are going through and going under. But you know what it says at the end of Exodus chapter 2? The people cried out to God and God heard their groaning. Even through all of that suffering, all of that hardship, all of that difficulty they were going through, they cried out to God. And God heard their groanings. And you know what God did? Read Exodus chapter 3. He raised up a deliverer. And that deliverer was the man Moses. And Moses led them out of Egypt and led them toward the promised land. Now Moses never got there. But Joshua led them into the promised land. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 4. The land of rest. The land of promise that God had promised them. They were looking for that rest. And our rest is found in Jesus Christ. Our rest is found in Jesus Christ. And that's what James is saying here. Don't hold grudges. Don't complain to one another or complain about one another. Ultimately, uh, when we're going through the difficulties of life, if our faith is weak, if our faith is not strong, what's the first thing we start to do? God, why me? Why are you doing this to me? Right? And we begin to complain. And when we get our eyes off of Him, what do we begin to do? We begin to complain about someone else. Well, well God, I, I know I'm, I'm living a life more righteous than so-and-so. Over there, let me point over there before Pam throws something at me. <laughs> For so, so-and-so over there. But look at how you're blessing them. You're not blessing me. What's going on here? And we begin to complain about that other person, Right? 
And pretty soon we're going to be like Elijah going to sit in the cave somewhere and it's, oh, woe is me. What's going on here, God? You know what James is saying? Don't do that. Establish your heart. Fix your heart on God. Fix your heart on His Word. Grudge not. Why? You're going to be condemned for that. The judge is standing at the door. And he knows what's going on. He gives us some, another illustration here in verse 10. Take my brothers. Notice how often he's using that term right here. Take my brothers, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord. These were the men of God who were faithful to God. And look what he says happened to them. Take them for an example of suffering and affliction and of patience. James uses some form of the word patience six times in these verses. He talks about the coming of the Lord three times in these verses. What do you think he's trying to tell us? Hold on. Jesus is coming. Be patient. The prophets here that he mentions, he doesn't name them. He just talks about the prophets. If you've ever studied a about the life of the prophets, what do you find? They were despised. They were rejected. I mean, uh, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. As he preached in the streets and he wept over the streets because the people turned deaf ears to his word. Uh, Amos he, he cried out to God that, that the people would repent. He was rejected. Some historical writers tell us that Isaiah was sawn in, in, in two for preaching the Word of God. And you and I think we have it hard. Look in Hebrews chapter 11. We've studied through the book of Hebrews. Verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about the prophets. And what shall I more say? For the time would follow me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Here's what happened. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, Waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. That is what the prophets did. That is who they were. They were faithful to what God had called them to do, but they suffered. They suffered for that. And if you are faithful to what God has called you to do, guess what? You're going to suffer also. Now, preacher, you were doing good until you got to that part. You had us all excited. Jesus is coming. But you know what I found when I fully gave my heart to Christ? Some people that I thought were my friends disappeared from my life. Hmm. People that I thought really liked me didn't want anything else to do with me. Why? 
because my lifestyle was radically different from their lifestyle. Now, as long as I was hanging with them and doing what they were doing, everything was fine, right? Is that really suffering? No, not really. Because you know what God did? He replaced those people with so many more people. I mean, we have met some wonderful people in our 30-plus years of ministry. Met some that was not so wonderful, but mostly wonderful. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> no, you all are wonderful. I'll just say that. Uh, you know how I feel about you. I hope uh, it's all good. Let me clarify that. But when you give your heart and life to Christ, you know what's going to happen? The world's going to turn against you. The world's going to turn against you. And James here says, be patient to establish your heart. And so these prophets here are examples of suffering and of patience. Look what he says in verse 11. Behold, pay attention, listen up. We count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job. Go back and read the book of Job. You have seen the end of the Lord. You remember the story of Job? He had a, a big family and a lot of wealth. What happened? Satan came to the, to, to the Lord one day. And if you look at that, Satan had no authority to do what he did except God gave it to him. And you know what God said? God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Job was allowed, or Satan was allowed to bring all kind of harm, all kind of evil on Job. But he could not take Job's life. And you remember the three friends of Job? What have you done? Why is God bringing this judgment on you? Why are you suffering? You must have done something really bad, Job. Now, if you'll just curse God, you'll, you'll die and be done with it. It's great friends, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want a friend like that. But Job endured. Job was patient to the end. Why? Because he knew that what was happening in his, in his life was the result of God's working in his life. And how does the story end? God blessed him more, more than he had before, right? And so James here says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job. You've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. He's a gracious God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. And when we're in the midst of the storm, maybe sometimes we cannot see His mercy. You know why? We get our eyes on self. We get our eyes on the circumstance. We get our eyes on the problem. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, I keep going back to verse 8, establish your heart. Firm up your heart in faith. In the word of God. To establish your heart. Knowing that the Lord is full of tender mercy. And here's the thing. When you're going through the trouble. When you're going through the trial. Don't ask why. 
It's okay to ask why. But that's not the main question. The main question is this. God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what can I learn from this? God, how can I use this to bring glory to you? You see, God's, when, when God brings a, a, a trial or a trouble in your life, it's not just because he looked down and said, Oh, they're doing so good, I haven't done anything to them lately. Boom, smack you down. No, that's not the way God works. That's not the God that I serve. God has a purpose for everything you deal with each and every day in your life. You know what your job is? To try, I don't know if you ever will, but to try to find out that purpose. But the main thing is, through it all, bring glory to Him. Praise His name. Praise Him in the storm. Uh, Casting Crown sings a song, I'll praise you in the storm. Do you know when Mark Hall wrote that song? When he was diagnosed with cancer. I believe he had kidney cancer or something a while back, years ago. That's another young man I went to school with. I should have been nicer too. But anyway. I'll praise you in this storm. In other words, no matter what comes my way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to praise God and I'm going to bring glory to Him. I pray that's your attitude this morning. And that's what James says. Those that endure will be happy. <laughs> be blessed. God's going to bless you. Verse 12 is sort of a transitional verse. I've put it on uh, here because it's, um, like I say, sort of a transitional verse, but it goes right along with what we're talking about. But above all things, my brothers, there it is again, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any, oath, uh, any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Now, evidently, James is writing to some Jewish believers who were not men of their word that would say one thing and do something else or make some promise and not hold on to the promise, not fulfill the promise. And so what James says here, don't swear by anything. You see, they had a, a system where they would swear by the top of their head, which meant I may or may not keep my promise. I swear by the heavens was pretty much saying I'm swearing uh, under oath of God and I'm going to keep my promise kind of thing. And, but what James says here is, is don't do that. Don't swear. Don't make a promise. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Men of integrity, men and women of our word. Now, I want to close with a passage in 1 John. Because there's some things that we don't know about the coming of Christ, right? I don't know when. Do you? <laughs> if you do, we need to talk. Because <laughs> you're, you're either more in touch with God than I am, <laughs> or you're lying, right? I think I've told you several times, um, I've got two books. One's a little pamphlet, little tiny thing. And I can't remember the guy uh, that wrote the thing. Uh, but I got that in the mail several, several years ago. And when I give you the title, you'll, you'll say, yeah, that was a while back. And maybe you've seen the book too. 
Uh, it's titled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will, Re Will Return in 88. And he's talking about 1988. I'm still waiting on a revision. I haven't gotten that yet. Um, but it was pretty interesting back in the early 90s to read that when I've come across it. Uh, to to kind of look through it. I received in the mail when I was in my first church. Um, this little book came in the mail one day. And the title of the book was, When Will Jesus Return? And I thought, oh, that's a pretty catchy title. Let me read this. So I started reading it. And I got about halfway through. And the, the, the author said, and I can't remember his name either. Not that it matters. But uh, I highlighted it. Big, bold statement in there. Jesus will return October 27th, 1997. Hadn't got a revision on that one either. And I don't remember how he come up with that number, that date. But the thing is, the Bible tells us that no man knows the hour that Jesus is, is returning. The Bible says that only the Father knows when Jesus is returning. And so in my little tiny finite mind, you know what I believe? I believe that only the Father knows. And I believe he's got it all worked out. So I don't know when he's going to return. But what I do know is this. He is going to return. Because the Bible says he's going to return. And we've looked at it three times here in this, these few verses this morning. That he's coming. He's at the door. He's near. His time is coming. We need to be ready. So what can we know? Here's what we can know. And this is what John writes in the first epistle of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That word manner means out of this world, unique, different kind of love. It is the agape love that the Father has given to us. That, here's what we know, we should be called the sons of God. What we are now are the children of God. That's our Christian dignity. That's who we are. If you are a believer, you are a child of God. That should make a Baptist shout. Amen? Here's what we can know. We are the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because the world does not know Him. That's why when you become a Christian, your whole set of friendships, your whole set of relationships changes unless you're, all your friends are believers. A lot of those non-believers will disassociate themselves from you because they cannot stand your lifestyle. I, I'll tell you this as a pastor. It, 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 this was kind of funny. The first high school reunion I went to, my 10-year reunion, I won't tell you what year, uh, but anyway, um, my first high school reunion I went to, 10 years, some of those friends, hey, how, how you been? What, what you doing these days? Well, I'm a Baptist preacher. Oh, good to see you. <laughs> and that was it. It's kind of like you got the plague. You got leprosy or something. I, that's... Just the way it is. And it kind of hurt my feelings to start with. But you know what I got to thinking? 
They need Jesus. And I need to be that light for them. So here's what we do know. That we are the children of God, our Christian dignity. Look what it says in verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we know He's coming back, right? And when He shall appear, what does He say? We will be like Him, and we will see Him as He is. That's our Christian destiny. That's what we will be. We will see Him as He is, and we are going to be like Him. Amen. So we don't know when, but we know He's coming, right? Now verse 3. Here's what we ought to be, our Christian duty. And every man that has this hope, this confident expectation, this assurance that He's coming back, everyone that's a child of God purifies himself, even as He is pure. You know what God requires of you today? To be holy. You know, there are those that preach and teach that God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy. And when you are holy and in a right relationship with God, and your one desire is to bring glory to His name, you know what? He will bless you. And you know what will be the outcome of that? You'll be happy. In the midst of your suffering. In the midst of your difficulties. Why? Because your goal, your focus is on Jesus Christ. To bring glory to Him. Why? Because He's coming. Hold on church. Let's pray. Father we thank you for the time we've had to share your word. We thank you for these that have come today. We thank you for these that are listening via Facebook. And Father we pray today that you would take these words. Take this message Father, that you would use it for your honor and your glory. Father, help us as your people. Help us as the church to bring glory to your name. Help us as the church to be busy sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world. Father, we need to live in light of the second coming, believing that you're coming back in our lifetime. Father, believing that it could be today. Father, help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.